Well, hello everyone and welcome to our 11th episode of Keeping It Simple. My name is Ronya and I'm with the Simplify Sales team based in San Francisco and it's my great pleasure to introduce you to today's guest speaker, Cam Harvey. He will, together with Simplify's Mike Green and Holly Bassman, discuss the future of finance. Now, Cam's got quite an extraordinary background and we are very excited to have him here. He's a professor of finance at Duke University and also does a lot of interesting research in the decentralized finance space, which will be the topic of today's webinar. Now, a couple of housekeeping items before we get started. We do love your questions, but make sure you submit them using the Q&A function. Also, please do remember that this is supposed to be entertaining and is certainly not investment advice. But with that, thank you all for tuning in and we will kick it off with a poll. All right, if DeFi, decentralized finance, is the future, it will arrive in within the next five years, five to 10, more than 10. Kids these days, never. As these answers are rolling in, I will hand it over to you, Mike. All right. Well, I tried to answer it myself, and unfortunately, it doesn't allow hosts or panelists to answer questions. But it gives us a fantastic opportunity to take a second and uh, say thank you to Cam for joining us. Cam, you and I have had the opportunity to meet um, just in the last really year and a half. Uh, you were kind enough to comment on a paper that I had written on the topic of the value premium and the potential linkage that that had to portfolio construction techniques and embedded optionality. Um, and it's been really a pleasure to get to know you and your work. Ronya had mentioned you're doing innovative stuff in DeFi, but one of the things that I would, would emphasize is, is that your career has broadly been characterized by challenging consensus, doing interesting work, working on, on many of the empirical challenges. And one of the most timely is not actually in the DeFi space, but is in the traditional finance space and the thought process around the yield curve. And so you, know, you were the creator of the yield curve indicator for recessions, which Harley, I know, thinks he created. But the reality is, is that you came after him to the University of Chicago and, and being precocious, figured it out much faster than he did. So may, maybe you could take two seconds and just talk with us a little bit about the yield curve, the twos 10 spread, and how that influences economic activity or predicts economic activity. And, and if you have any immediate thoughts about what the signal is being sent to us from the markets might be. Sure. So this is where I started my research. Uh, indeed, it was a task that I was given in a summer internship uh, during my master's. And I was working for, at the time, the largest copper, copper mining firm in the world. And they wanted some sort of forecast of next year's real GDP growth, which is really important for copper. Copper moves with the business cycle and you need to open mines or close mines. And I immediately thought of going to financial instruments because you know, for the stock market, uh, it should have expectations of future economic activity incorporated into prices, right? So expected earnings are correlated with what's happening in the economy. And I looked at the stock market, but it was just all over the place. And, and the reason was kind of simple, and that was that stock market is risky. And the second place I looked was the bond market and it seemed really ideal because you had a fixed maturity, uh, you knew what the cash flows were going to be for sure. So it's not like a dividend that who knows if it's going to be paid. And the expiration of a stock, who knows what that is. Uh, and it was also not that risky. Uh, and we know that 
uh, interest rates contain both expected inflation and an expected real rate. That real rate is linked to economic activity. So I decided, well, why don't we just take a spread? Uh, and I looked at the 10-year minus three-month and the five-year minus three-month in my dissertation and found that it did a remarkable job at forecasting real GDP. Uh, it was so remarkable that at the time, you'd, you'd spend thousands of dollars to get forecasts from a professional econometric uh, forecasting firm. And, and these forecasts were doing as well or better, and they were essentially free. So that was my dissertation. It was a bit of a tough sell at the University of Chicago because the sample wasn't that long, like four uh, recessions, and I got four out of four without any false signals. Uh, but they really liked the economic foundation, decided to pass me. And then usually what happens after you publish something that the effect gets weaker or the effect goes away. And in my particular situation, it didn't go away. Uh, we've had four recessions since uh, the publication of my dissertation, uh, four yield curve inversions that preceded uh, each recession. And the most recent one, and Harley and I have talked extensively about this, happened in 2018. Um, the yield curve inverted in response to Fed hiking. And th there's, you know, Harley, I think, said this far better than I ever did, but, you know, whether you want to consider that a, um, a penalty box because of the pandemic, right? We had, it certainly didn't tell you that there was going to be a virus that, that was going to cause it, but it yeah. really did feel like there was a firm recession in play. Yeah, exactly. So uh, June 30th, uh, 2019, I went on the record. We had the full quarter of inversion. I said, my model predicts a recession in um, 2020. Uh, and of course, we'll never know the counterfactual if the COVID-19 didn't occur. Would there have been a recession? I don't know, but there was plenty of other evidence. The Duke CFO survey that we've been doing for 25 years, yeah. over half of the CFOs and yeah. the CEOs responding thought there was going to be a recession in 2020. And if you, if you added 2021, it was like 75% of them. So, so I think, uh, yeah, maybe uh, there's a bit of luck here in terms of, yeah, there's a recession due to COVID. But again, we won't know the counterfactual. The bottom line is we haven't had a false signal yet. You asked about uh, today. And what I look at is the, uh, the 10 year minus the three month. I know the Fed likes to look at the 10 year minus two year and that's very flat. Uh, the bottom line here is that a flattening yield curve is bad news for economic growth. So that, uh, that's the linkage. I have a question or two. Um, I, I'll, I'll leave it in front of you and say that I wrote about uh, the recession coming in November of 2018 uh, and, and said it was going to come in the spring of 2020. But uh, yes, I, so do we predict COVID or not? Unclear. Uh, so three month tenure, that was my first question. The second is, does it have to be treasuries or can it be swaps? And swaps are interesting because you have this a 50 basis point spread between the front end because twos are plus 20 and bonds are minus 30. So that kind of flattens the curve. And number three, which is we've already inverted in forward space. Is that cheating or you have to use spot space? So look, um, I chose to look at two very liquid bonds, the 10 year and the three month. 
it's really important for my economic model to use um, a short-term measure. And that's the, uh, the three-month uh, treasury bill. And, and that's what I've used. Other people have found, oh, well, it works better if you use the 10-year minus uh, two-year. So within sample. But like, how far do you go here? So, so maybe it's the eight and a half year and in uh, the three year and two month uh, spread that does better when you fit it in sample. So you need to be really careful here of overfitting. And I, I certainly understand why you would go to a different model. And the main reason to go to a different uh, sort of uh, model is that the current model has failed. And my model hasn't failed yet. Yeah. So, so why fix it when it's not broken? And, and, and you do um, like a different spread at great risk of, of overfitting. So I, again, I just go with what I published in, in 1986. So, yeah. so it's a long track record. And uh, as for other things to use um, in terms of swaps and, and things like that, look, this model is super simple, right? It's, it's one variable. And if I was reassigned this task, of forecasting real GDP. Uh, well, I, I would definitely use the yield curve, but it's not the only thing that I would look at. There's plenty of other measures that are interesting. For example, looking at uh, like a credit spread, that's gonna be predictive also of uh, future economic growth. So there's, there's many things that you could use. You just need to be careful that you don't overfit the data. And as soon as you overfit, then your model is going to do a poor job uh, in real time. So to put you on, on the spot here, you're not going to make a call for recession yet because we haven't crossed inverted in spot space yet. Unlike other people, uh, Lacey Hunt or Dave Rosenberg or other people who were saying it's coming because we, we flipped in forward space, you're not going to go there yet. I'm not going to go there yet, uh, according to my model. So I don't have like an inversion. So I'm not going to make a call based upon the model. And there's plenty of other data. The Atlanta Fed just released um, their now cast for the first quarter with zero uh, real economic growth. And you know, the second quarter is likely worse. So there's other data that you would look at, but according to the model, there's no code red yet. It's, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, one, the, the, your introduction to this brings me back to a world that feels so innocent relative to what we are today. Because I mean, I, I, so I was at Wharton soon after um, uh, you and Harley were at the University of Chicago. And so much of the emphasis was on macroeconomic quantitative forecasting. It was such an important part of what we were doing in empirical finance at that point. Um, and it, it's, it, it's, to me, it's very interesting to, to think about that. Um, the other thing that was, of course, really interesting, it brings back a story from early in my career where, where another one of my um, mentors was describing a similar assignment where he was asked to predict interest rates for a tobacco company, right? And I forget exactly why the tobacco company cared about interest rates, but he basically came to the conclusion, he's like, if I could predict interest rates, why would I tell you? I just go off and make billions of dollars in the market, right? So par part of the reason why I'm, I'm bringing that up is, you know, we're 16 years, I'm sorry, 26 years into, actually, it's more than that. Uh, yeah, 26 years into that experience. 
And that data set, um, sorry, 36 years. And this is what happens when you go to Wharton. Exactly. You don't, you're <laughs> terrible at quantitative numbers, 36 years. Um, you, you, I'm trying to deny how old I have become in the process is really what happens. But um, the, 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 I, I would ask you, have you, in those 36 years, have you spent a lot of time thinking about the mechanism, like what it is actually telling you? What do you what, what's your gut in terms of why this indicator works? Uh, the, the economic foundation is very secure. Uh, and indeed, as I mentioned, uh, my committee, a pretty tough committee, uh, and, and remarkably, three of them went on to win Nobel Prizes. Um, they understood the mechanism. And the mechanism has to do with the real interest rate. And the real interest rate in almost all of our economic models is linked to the real economic growth in an economy. But there's many ways to motivate uh, what's going on here. So you could think of uh, people being very worried about a recession. And what do you do in terms of your, your bond portfolio? So, uh, it, it, and we see this all the time where there is uh, a flight to quality uh, where people will shift the maturity uh, to try to insure uh, themselves. Uh, the price of the 10-year uh, the bond goes up, the rate goes down, and that uh, pushes us towards uh, an inversion. So again, there's many economic episodes uh, that are just like that, where people get nervous, recession, bad news, there's a lot of uncertainty, and you get a flattening of the yield curve. I, I know we want to switch over to DeFi in a second, but I, I will ask one more question here. I've stood on your shoulders uh, about the, uh, the yield curve in the economy, and I've built on that and said there's a relationship between the yield curve and implied volatility. Do you do any work on that kind of stuff? Yeah, so, so again, all of these things are endogenous. So what we're really talking about are expectations. And that's what the yield curve is actually capturing. So you think of an interest rate. An interest rate is an expectation of inflation, expectation of uh, a real rate, and the expectation of risk in the economy. So all of these are, are interacting. And volatility, of course, tells us something about... Um, the amount of uncertainty uh, in the economy. And it's often the case that higher volatility is associated with bad news. And, and so you get this relation between, uh, let's say the slope of the yield curve, uh, equity volatility, uh, credit volatility. You see uh, a relation between credit spreads. Uh, there, there's many linkages here that can be harvested. So you actually, both of you just interjected a topic that actually just came up in the Q&A. And it's this question of the role of volatility and how to think about that dynamic, both in terms of explaining to people why it matters um, and helping people understand why we may be seeing elements of it in markets and how it can be used to protect. Cam, I know you've also done a whole bunch of stuff on hedging. Um, one of the characteristics of hedges is, is that they often tap into volatility markets through the use of options or credit spreads, et cetera, um, to help hedge against adverse events. The way I think about that volatility component is that it represents exactly what you said, that it's uncertainty and human beings don't invest into insert uncertainty or they reduce their propensity to make investments, particularly long-term, right? So 
when you think about the much higher implied and realized levels of volatility that we're seeing right now, and you know whether that's in interest rates where the move index, Harley has done a great job of highlighting this move index, which Harley created, by the way, I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but um, um, the, 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 the dynamics of the explosion in the move index have been quite profound, right? Um, a little bit less in equity volatility. We're beginning to see credit spreads widen out significantly. Are we seeing that echoed in things like the Duke surveys that you mentioned before? Like, is yes. it? Yeah, definitely. So the, the Duke survey is is really interesting. Uh, Maybe you can we, give some quick background on that because this is a CFO survey that you guys do there that I think is fascinating. Yeah. So we've been doing this survey for 25 years. So it's got a very long uh, track record. Uh, it's got a domestic component. It's got an international uh, component. Uh, and essentially, we asked the CFOs what they think is going to happen. And it's a detailed survey. Uh, it, it is now actually um, uh, run by the Fed. So it was interesting to the Fed because uh, essentially our evidence suggested that the survey had information in advance of other popular leading indicators like supply uh, managers, ISM, and stuff like that. And it kind of made sense because the CFO knew what the plans were. And then the, the execution of the plans are given to the uh, purchasing manager. And then they basically do what they do and it shows up in the data. So, so we definitely have like an edge in terms of a leading indicator, whether it's a month or two months. Uh, and again, we've had this um, survey going for, for 25 years. And, and you're correct that uh, at, at turning points, it's extremely useful to see how these CFOs are changing their behavior in terms of capital spending, uh, projected uh, increases or decreases in employment. Uh, this stuff, extremely uh, valuable information. And, and just to use that, it is suggesting something similar, um, but far from identical to the, to the yield curve, right? So the yield curve has, has flattened. That's a concerning factor. The Duke CFO survey, I believe, turned down in the second quarter or third quarter of last year, um, began to retreat. It's not at levels that are consistent with a recession, but it is it has fallen enough that I think, you know, it's kind of raise your eyebrows and start to pay much closer attention. Exactly. You put all this information together, right? So you've got a flattening yield curve. You've got the CFO survey, which is soft or maybe even negative. Uh, and then you just look around, open your eyes, right? We've got a situation of very heightened geopolitical risk. And yeah, uh, obviously expectations of growth have gone down. The uncertainty has exploded. Yeah, it's it, it is very much what I'm saying. I, I think one of the things that concerns me most is that many of the things that are causing concern are not things that lend themselves to monetary policy to fix, right? So shortages and scarcity, which is distinct from inflation, right? So this is one of these weird things where you know we all know that right prices rising shows up in the CPI, and we call that inflation but it's not quite the same thing as a monetary inflation that is caused by you know, excess money printing or excess credit availability, et cetera. Right? We're not stressing the system 
versus its historical production capabilities, it appears that we've damaged the system in terms of its capability of meeting needs that are structurally less than it historically has been capable of doing. So you're correct that the causes differ, but the outcome is the same. That inflation is very bad news for the economy. So it is a tax, it is a regressive tax. Uh, obviously, uh, for example, Gates or Bezos, they don't care if the price of gas is $5 a gallon or $50 a gallon. So it's a regressive uh, sort of tax. Uh, and for many people, it cuts directly into their disposable income. And if you look at, uh, I've got a paper on SSRN that uh, looks at the history of inflation surges uh, in the US over the past 95 years. And if you look over the last six surges, uh, five of them uh, were followed by a recession. So, so this is not good news. If you're an investor, it's terrible news uh, because obviously bonds get hammered in an inflation surge and equities do poorly. So there's not many places to hide. It's a, it, it's a really challenging one. And um, you know, we have certainly seen bonds get hit, although the real yields, to use a, a, an expression that, that you introduced early on, We've not seen the type of response, particularly at the long end, that people I think had anticipated given the level of inflation that has emerged. Now I have some theories around that, but it's, it, let's put that aside for a second and just highlight that what you're saying though is I think really important. When you characterize inflation as a tax and as a regressive tax, it doesn't hit Bill Gates except in the value of his investments. It's not gonna change his quality of life or standard at all. One of the things that I've tried to focus people on and that I'm, I'm particularly concerned about is exactly what you're highlighting, that the bottom quintile of the income strata is getting slammed. I mean, this is really, really bad what is going on to, to use you know, plain English. Um, and as bad as it is in the United States, where I'm increasingly concerned is the emerging markets, right? Because many of the goods and services, goods in particular that we take for granted, you know, I've highlighted for people, for example, that wheat represents about 10 cents of your typical loaf of bread at the, at the grocery store. When it doubles in price, let's say your grocery goes up 10%, that's a 20 cent increase, profit margins are, are reasonably protected. You're not freaking out about, you know, buying a loaf of bread for 10% more. But if the further down the value chain you go, the more you go to emerging markets where you're buying unprocessed wheat and making your own bread and, and substituting your, your wife's labor for it, et cetera, the larger that impact is. And we're beginning to see the evidence, not just of price increases, but absolute scarcity, just not able to get the calories, not able to get the diesel that's required to run the tractor, that's required to you know, fertilize the field, et cetera. This is a real problem that's developing in the emerging and frontier markets. Yeah, it's a snowball effect. Yeah. So, um, and, and I do think you're correct that we're focused so much on the price of gasoline in the US that we're missing the big picture, that the US really depends upon trade. Uh, we're living in a very global economy right now. And 
and a crisis in emerging markets is not good news for the U.S. economy. Yeah, it's much worse for the for the emerging <laughs> the emerging markets. But yes, I agree with you yeah. that linked system. There's the old expression, "All roads lead to Rome," right? Well, there's a reason for that. Rome sat at the center of consumption, right? The U.S. sits at the center of consumption in the global system. Um, it's it's a challenging environment. Speaking of the U.S. at the center of the system, this gives us a perfect opportunity to segue into decentralized finance, which on, on your over your right shoulder or off to your right shoulder is your book, DeFi. We've provided a link in um, the chat and we will be tweeting. We should have tweeted this out as well. Um, you have offered a course on Coursera uh, for DeFi. You've written a book. There's a paper on SSRN that's an abbreviated version of the book that I found fascinating and, and is really the reason why we, we brought you on to talk with us. What the heck is decentralized finance? What does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, so after the poll, um, yeah. we actually go uh, and do the definition. So, so in the simplest possible way, um, think of decentralized finance as trading with an algorithm. So okay. you've got asset A and you want to use it to buy asset B. And you send asset A to an algorithm, the algorithm sends you asset B. Uh, so that's not the usual way we do a trade. So usually we go through a broker uh, and uh, it, it might be a FinTech broker like Robinhood or a traditional one. And we go uh, to a stock market and things like that. This is different. It's an algorithm. It's available 24 seven. The algorithm actually doesn't care if you're a buyer or a seller doesn't care what time of the day it is. It's completely transparent. So you get an idea of the price that you're gonna get. And that to me uh, is a very important component of decentralized finance. It's called decentralized exchange or DEX. And it's not really that hard to imagine in the future that we'll be interacting with algorithms in many different applications, not just in finance. So DEX is important. Effectively, this algorithm allows for a peer-to-peer -peer interaction. So it's not dealing with the middle person, the market maker. You're dealing with an algorithm that's matching peers uh, together. And you cut out a lot of the middle. But DeFi is not just about decentralized exchange. It's about doing transactions more efficiently, like sending money. It's about savings and lending. And it's about tokenizing everything, uh, physical assets, virtual assets, things that we're used to thinking about in the physical form could easily be uh, tokenized. Uh, DeFi is also the backbone of what people call uh, Web3 or the metaverse. There's no metaverse without decentralized uh, finance. So this is, a very interesting technology uh, by definition, of course, it's uh, decentralized. It's not one company making the decisions. Uh, it's an algorithm uh, and the algorithm does have a governance, uh, but it's not a company that's uh, controlling it. It's a decentralized uh, governance and it's a completely different model than what we're used to in centralized finance. And it solves a number of problems. So, so you brought in a couple of terms there that I, I want to make sure that we 
the, the one I actually have the definitions correct and, and the contrast between the two, and I, hopefully that's helpful to the audience. Um, so first, when you talk about a decentralized exchange, what you're actually referring to is physically the CBOE is, is a centralized exchange. I need to be plugged in directly to that system. I need to be a licensed participant who has purchased a seat on the exchange in the old form or access to the exchange in today's form, right? Um, That's correct. That entrance to the exchange used to allow floor brokers, I actually played that role for a while, um, to represent clients and facilitate exchange in a peer-to-peer -peer transaction, but it happened only in that localized place, right? So when you talk about a decentralized exchange, there's actually two components that are being cut out. One is there is no need to have the central feature or the central location. The second thing is, is that the exchange itself becomes available to functionally anyone who wants to participate, assuming they have the tokens that are required for participation in the exchange, right? Now that token could be as simple as something like a US dollar, right? That would theoretically be a way of buying your way into the exchange. But more commonly, it takes the form of a token um, whether that is a, you know, sushi token or a Uniswap token, et cetera, um, tokens that are effectively used as money within the exchange to facilitate that exchange. Is that is that fair? What I'm referring, the way I described it. Yeah, there's one more layer. Yeah, yes, Please. it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So we think about you talk about uh, CBOE, but. Think about uh, NASDAQ and NYSE, yes. that you make a decision where to list the stock. So the stock isn't traded on NYSE and NASDAQ. It's one or the other. Whereas in the world of decentralized finance, you've got the ability to trade the same thing in many different venues. So you can have hundreds of decentralized exchanges uh, and indeed, there's many centralized exchanges that uh, compete uh, with each other. You know, for example, Coinbase is a centralized exchange. Sometimes we call it CDFI, C-E-D-E-F-I. So it's a centralized exchange that deals with decentralized uh, tokens. Uh, so, so there is a, it's a different type of model where you've got this competition. It's a different model in that everything is transparent. So you see exactly the liquidity uh, in the pool uh, for the decentralized exchange. It would be like in uh, a traditional centralized market, knowing exactly what the market maker had in the inventory. All of this is completely open for anybody uh, to see. So it is a remarkable idea. And, uh, and, and it's also remarkable that it's really difficult to think about buying something on the NYSE, then immediately selling it on NASDAQ, like if that was even possible. All of these decentralized exchanges are linked together. And in a single transaction, you can go from one exchange to another exchange to another exchange. And even though there might be hundreds of these decentralized exchanges within the network, they act as one. Well, they don't act exactly as one, right? As I understand it, or maybe I would phrase it slightly differently. The conditions that allow arbitrage across exchanges create the conditions under which it behaves as one, 
right? So that ability to transact near simultaneously on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ would theoretically prevent the shares of Microsoft that are currently listed on the NASDAQ, but could theoretically be listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, I believe that's correct. I'm not entirely certain. Um, it, you know, it, it, would, it would force their prices to obey what's referred to as the law of one price because they are identical instruments just traded in different locations. Yeah, so uh, you're correct. And, and let me just uh, qualify that they effectively act as one. Yes. So okay. with this arbitrage, and the arbitrage is so interesting. Yeah. Um, do, do you know what a flash loan is? I, I'm I am familiar with it, but I want the term defined, but it's basically an, an instantaneous, it's almost like popping in and out loan sort of thing that yeah, allows, it, facilitates arbitrage. Yeah, so this is, for me, one of the most fascinating ideas in decentralized finance. Okay. So this is a loan that is completely uncollateralized. So you need to post no collateral. Indeed, you don't even need to identify yourself. And the loan has a zero duration. It has no counterparty risk and often has no interest rate. So how is that possible? How is that useful? And basically this is the way that uh, decentralized uh, finance works. Within a transaction, there are many steps. And if any step fails, then you revert to the state of the world before the transaction uh, began. So think of a, a transaction that's got the first step, I'm gonna take a flash loan out. And then the second step, I see a token on a decentralized exchange that looks cheap compared to another decentralized exchange. So use the money from the loan to buy the cheap token, that's step two. Step three, I sell the token on the other exchange at a higher price. Step four, I pay back the loan and whatever's left over, I get as a profit. And the key thing is that if something happened whereby uh, I went to sell on this other exchange, I thought I could get a high price, but I got a lower price and I didn't have enough money to pay back the uh, flash loan, then it's like nothing happened. And I show my students... Yeah, so I show my students uh, these examples of these loans. And one of them I show, um, the first step is a $200 million uh, flash loan. Okay, so again, it's, it's remarkable. Like who can do a $200 million uncollateralized loan? Like even the largest hedge funds in the world would have trouble uh, pulling something like that off with no collateral. And this could be anybody. And this is why decentralized finance is a technology of inclusion and financial democracy. It could be a high school student sees an opportunity of an arbitrage and executes this uh, transaction. And she could make like a huge amount of money on this with almost no risk. And this is what I mean that effectively all of these exchanges are linked. Uh, this is a very powerful way that anybody can do arbitrage. So again, a high school student versus you know a hedge fund. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody is a peer in this space. So it's very interesting uh, for me uh, to, so, so to see so you, something so different. Yeah. So, you, so, so there's a couple of things that are really, really, really important that you hit on there. 
One is this issue of access, right? And this is 100%, I completely agree with you. It is patently absurd that in order to become a successful hedge fund, I need to have access to institutional investors. I need to have access to credit uh, lines that are constructed under ISDAs. I, 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 you know, that has to be approved by Goldman Sachs, has to be approved by Credit Suisse, et cetera. The only way I get in there is by knowing the right people, having the right education, wish I'd gone to the University of Chicago so I could have gotten that right education. But the reality is, is that those gatekeepers are incredible challenges, right? And they limit the participation and create conditions under which there are many players that have preferential access, right? And so part of what you're highlighting is this opens it up. But you also used a phrase, nearly risk-free. How can that trade go wrong? How can, how can that arbitrage condition go wrong? Who somebody has to lose? My understanding is, is that the loser is effectively the individual who thought they sold the first contract. What you're actually doing is, is entering into effectively a Bayesian contract that says, I'm going to buy this from you conditional on my being able to sell it over here, right? Yeah. So what I, there's a number of dimensions of risk here, yep. uh, but one of the simplest ones is that to actually execute this arbitrage could be costly in terms of um, the transaction fees. Yep. Uh, the network is very congested uh, these days, and the Ethereum network is moving towards a way to reduce the transactions fees. Uh, and, and to speed up the number of transactions up per second. So if it doesn't go through, so if you couldn't pay back the loan and you kind of revert to the initial state, you would still lose the transaction fees. So that's one element of the risk. Uh, there are other uh, elements and um, it might be that you do this trade and then the way again that um, the Ethereum network uh, works um, these trades need to be basically put in the Ethereum blockchain. And they go into an area called the memory pool where anybody can see them. And it might be that somebody sees that trade and says, oh, that's a great idea. I'm going to do the same thing and jump ahead. And this is known as front running. And usually we think of front running as something that's illegal, and it is illegal in, in centralized finance. But given that everything's public, it's, uh, it's perfectly acceptable uh, to do this. So you could easily be front run also. And then uh, number three is just- I'm sorry, just to, to emphasize how you could be front run, right? Because theoretically, I've started the transaction. Somebody can get in front of me effectively by paying a premium in fees, right? So yeah, that's the exactly. way you get in front. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, so that's a risk right now. It'll be less of a risk uh, when Ethereum uh, transitions to uh, their 2.0 uh, version uh, next year, but nevertheless, that's a risk. The, the third risk factor is the DEX itself. So it is a computer program and it might have a flaw. So you need to be careful about that also. This is more of an issue for those that uh, supply the liquidity uh, to the decentralized exchange. But nevertheless, any algorithm uh, could have a problem. We know that. 
So you seem to be waving your hand and ignoring credit risk over here, which Mike, that's why we no have- no credit risk. There's no credit risk. So, so oh, again- well, Wait a second though. That's not actually entirely true because the credit risk, as you pointed out, is actually from those who are providing liquidity to the exchange, right? Okay, so for the trader, so the person that is actually doing this arbitrage uh, or taking the, the flash loan, credit risk is irrelevant. It's all in one transaction. Duration is zero. Doesn't if matter. I sell, if I could sell to somebody conditionally, and I could sell at the exact same price unconditionally, wouldn't I always sell unconditionally? Okay, so, so again, uh, you see this opportunity, you try to pursue it, uh, and, and it's not instant, right? Because all of these transactions have to be posted to the Ethereum blockchain. So given that time lag, given that prices can change, given that you could be front run, it's not a sure thing. But someone's, I mean, Mike, this is why, why, why we demand you Chicago MBAs before we give out is just because we don't trust the people to pay the loans back. I mean, you well, know, but the, so, so it, this it's is, not a matter of IQ, it's a matter of, can, can you, can, do you have the money to go back the trade if it, if, it, if it breaks? But that's actually, so Harley, this is yeah. part of the dynamic. It's yeah. actually much more along the, uh, the lines of, no, particularly under a framework of proof of work rather than proof of stake, right? Which is the direction that it's moving in. And unfortunately, proof of stake takes away some of the components of inclusion that Cam was referring to before, because you effectively need capital to be able to get your trade executed. No, no, no. no. So just let me clarify okay. here. Uh, the, the mechanism uh, of proof of stake only has to do with adding transactions to the blockchain record. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really have anything to do with those that are active trading uh, in the market. Uh, it actually makes it uh, safer uh, for them because it reduces the probability of front running and it greatly increases the speed also. So, uh, so this has to do uh, just with the, the validation of transactions and, and adding additional transactions to the record, uh, the ledger or the blockchain. Maybe I, need to re maybe I need to rephrase what I was trying to express there, but um, when you move to the proof of stake component, as compared to doing the processing on a GPU or on an ASIC in the form of, of Bitcoin, um, what you're actually doing is you're saying, I'm willing to risk X amount to, ver to vouch for the accuracy of what I'm doing, right? And so somebody trying to front run could effectively contribute to you losing the capital that you're posting because you vouch for somebody who other people are not willing to honor the majority consensus is not willing to honor their participation in the trade. Is that, does that feel better in terms of the framing? Yeah, let me step back a bit um, sure. for the viewers. So proof of work is what happens right now with Bitcoin and Ethereum. And you've got all of these so-called miners, thousands of them doing redundant work trying to come up with basically a magic number. And it's like a lottery. So it's very redundant. It's very energy intensive. It's very slow. And the idea in Ethereum is to move to a different model and it's called proof of stake. And the idea is really simple that we still have the same mechanism of validation of transaction. And a validation is simply, 
well, if I'm sending money to you, I need to have the money to send. Okay, so uh, that's a, a simple validation. So in the proof of stake model, the, uh, the miners actually have to put up some capital. And if I put up, let's say 10% of the overall capital, then overall there's a 10% probability that I will be chosen to validate transactions and add a block of transactions to the Ethereum blockchain. So it's not going to be one out of 10, it's just probabilistic. And over a longer term, it'll be about 10%. And that is not redundant. So it's one uh, entity that's chosen to actually do this. And it is incentive compatible too, that if, for example, you put in a transaction that is invalid, then the network sees that and it comes directly out of your stake. So why would you do that? So it's, so it's incented so that the uh, miner, the validator does the right thing. And again, uh, it increases the speed, it reduces transactions costs. There are many other Ethereum-like blockchains today in decentralized finance that have already gone there and, and are doing quite well. So, so it's just the next step uh, in terms of this process, this evolution in decentralized finance. If I have to prove that I have the asset before I sell it, that's not a loan, that's just a cash trade for settlement. So the, the proof is available to anybody. So I'm sending um, some funds from one address to another. And for me to be able to, to send the funds, uh, we have to check to see if I've got them. It's and the balance debt. is checked it's, and, and that's cash. it. But you, you yeah. have the asset, it's not a loan then. Yeah, so this is, yeah, so again, the loans in decentralized finance are, are fully collateralized or over collateralized with the exception of the flash right. loan. Yeah. And the flash loan's got zero duration anyway, so it's kind of a weird uh, type of loan. But uh, again, the validation, this is the key problem that Satoshi Nakamoto uh, solved. We had plenty of digital currency initiatives in 1980s. Uh, indeed, the initial browsers, Mozilla in the early 1990s, they were built just assuming we would have digital currency. And it turns out that all of these initiatives failed because they couldn't solve the so-called double spending problem and the intuition is really simple, that with uh, digitization, you can make a perfect copy of a movie or a book or a song. Well, it's the same idea. Uh, you can make a perfect counterfeit uh, of currency if it's all digital. And all of these initiatives uh, failed until we got to the uh, 2008 uh, white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto. And all of the the technology in decentralized finance uses the foundational ideas uh, in in that paper. So Harley, just to emphasize, when when you're when we're highlighting the flash loan, effectively that is a a um, willingness to say we're going to take a conditional sale at all times in order to facilitate arbitrage. Right? I, I, would, I wouldn't sell you conditionally. I wouldn't want to do that. There's, there's got to be a price spread between a conditional loan and an unconditional loan. There, there, there does have to be a difference, 
And that ultimately would be reflected in the price difference that could be achieved on a Coinbase, for example, a centralized exchange that is willing to step in and say, we will take the counterparty risk, right, relative to the decentralized exchange. And so there are price differences that exist across this, but they are limited by this provision of well, capital. So Coinbase is making a loan then. What's that? Coinbase is making a loan. They're making, they're taking the credit risk. I, I want to, by the way, I would just say we already have digital currency, it's called Venmo, but I want, before the clock runs out, I want to hit one more thing. If the grand notion is to eliminate the middleman, so our top five banks that have, on the word you say, Mike, half of all you know, assets in the country now, if, the, if the, one of the purposes of, this, of our banking system is fiduciary, is to go and help people who really can't help themselves. And, to, and, to, and so if a mistake happens, they can go and if fraud happens, they get they get their money refunded, things like that. Um, you talk about our aggressive tax over here, uh, which I agree, uh, inflation is a bad thing. Um, is, isn't removing fiduciaries in the middle also aggressive cost? Because people, most people really are not capable of managing their own funds. And um, there's reasons why we have laws about, you know, I don't know, drugs and gambling is because protecting society, you know, public policy, seems to me if we pull the, the pull the banks out, we're basically taking all the, all the rails off the system, and that can't be good public policy for people who are not really fully capable of uh, having an ISDA or something else. Yeah, you're reading the script of the commercial banks. I did, so, so let I, me, I, let me I, clarify. I did there for a while. Yeah, yeah, I can tell. So uh, first, uh, Venmo uh, is based upon our centralized uh, commercial banking system. Yeah. So you can call it digital. Well, you know, I guess um, a lot of stuff that we do in kind of the centralized uh, finance uh, is enabled by digital uh, technology, but the infrastructure is not much different than a hundred years ago. And if you want to talk about helping people, uh, let's actually start at the top. We have 1.7 billion people in the world that are unbanked. And we've got many more than that that are underbanked. And let me give you an example of what I mean by underbanked. The entrepreneur comes up with a good idea. It's got over 20% uh, rate of return projected. The entrepreneur is banked. They go to the bank, hey, uh, this is my idea. I need it financed. The banker likes the idea. And the banker says, well, um, this is a good idea, but we would prefer to deal with one larger customer than a hundred like you. But given that you're a customer of the bank, you've got a credit card, we will extend the credit limit on your credit card and you can take out the loan with that. And we know what those interest rates look like. They're punitive. And it turns out that the project doesn't go forward, even though it had, let's say a 20% rate of return. And this, is an example of why our economy is stuck with 2% or 1% real GDP growth. That there's so many opportunities, high quality opportunities out there that due to these financial frictions are just not pursued. The banks today have considerable market power. It's highly concentrated explains why savings rates are so low. It explains why loan rates are so high. This basic friction is something, and I've got academic research on this that takes a bite out of real GDP growth. And at this point, 
in time, in, in our history, we need that growth. And, and if you look at our situation, we've got a massive amount of government debt, and it might get even greater uh, with this current uh, crisis. And there's three ways to pay it down, and it has to be paid down eventually. Number one, you increase taxes. And nobody wants to do that. No politician wants to do that. Uh, number two, you inflate. And we've already discussed that inflation is like a tax and, and you don't wanna do that either. And number three, the most attractive way is to grow because you can keep the tax rate the same. If you grow, then the revenue will come in and allow you to pay down some of that debt. So I think it's of paramount importance to actually reduce these financial frictions, to make our system much more efficient, to make it more inclusive, to make it more democratic. And, and, and basically this all leads to extra or additional uh, GDP growth. That's what we need. Well, well the it, last it, time we offered, well, hang on, the last time we offered like, I don't know, take the adults out of the room, it was called the great financial crisis where we allowed people to take out 110% LTV loans and loans that they could not pay back. So, I mean, that, that's what I see what happens when, when, when you remove the guardrails. Well, so this is really interesting. Um, there, there was this uh, letter that, um, that went uh, to uh, the treasury secretary by Senator Warren that was criticizing DeFi for being this highly opaque space uh, within the cryptocurrency market. And, and I thought it was ironic. Um, I'm not sure who wrote it for her, but uh, this space is completely transparent. So you see the balances of everybody. You see what the liquidity is. You see the, the details of all the algorithms. The problem with opacity is with our current uh, financial system. And we've got a situation where we have to trust the regulator to control the risk of our financial institutions. And, and the regulator's track record is not very good. As you said, in the global uh, financial crisis, we're caught by surprise. Uh, these banks were able to essentially act as hedge funds with excessive leverage, and some of it uh, driven by uh, deposits that were insured by the government. And people had no idea it was completely uh, non-transparent and uh, the system came crashing down and it had a very negative effect, not just on the banks, but the recession that happened hurt so many people. So decentralized finance is a completely different system. It's a system that is transparent. I don't want to go, you might take this as an insult or as a compliment. I'm not sure which way it'll go, but the last person I know of significance who, who advocated for basically market efficiency and that people act rationally in, a, in, in this kind of system was Alan Greenspan. Um, and we saw where that ended up. So I, I, I just, I, I think that to some degree we, we are, all people are not Ayn Rand rational, they're irrational and the government needs to have some kind of protection uh, for people. That's why we have laws for, for certain things. So, so, so again, like, yeah. I don't think I'm arguing that there should be no regulation. Uh, I didn't say that at any point. Uh, so yes, it, it's always the case that there's going to be some risk. And it's always the case with the new technology, especially, that, um, that people will be taken advantage of. 
and that's a part of the risk. And the regulator is has got a challenge. Yeah. So if you if you're too harsh in the regulation then you're going to drive all the innovation offshore and no country wants to lose its best ideas. If you do nothing, then, then people will be uh, taken advantage of. And you know that the, the foundation of the SEC goes back to people that were taken advantage of in the late 1920s. So, so you need something in the middle. This space is new. It has the potential to solve many problems. And that's good, but it's not without risk. You know, if you want something risk-free, just sell everything and buy treasury bills. <laughs> so this is so. Uh, let me interject between you two for a second because I, I I actually think you're you're ironically both saying many of the same things. Harley is coming at it from the perspective of let's make sure that we protect people, and Cam, you're saying if we focus on protecting people exclusively then we're going to maintain a system in which access is denied, right? Um, and, and, and I think that's a really important clarification. And Harley, I would, I would just highlight that many of the problems that arose in the global financial crisis, for example, loans at 110% of the underlying collateral, right, being the value of the house, those actually were not the key drivers of the, the issues that happened in the global financial crisis. They lost in those systems. The people who took out those loans ended up losing. But here we are 10 How years they later. Lose? They, they had, they had non-recourse loans and they borrowed more than they invested. They had a free option of housing going up. I mean, I'll just say, I mean, I, I was because it wasn't a, because it wasn't a free option in any way, shape or form. Right. The, the minute you know, I, I will tell you. Yeah. I, no, you, I sold my I sold my mother-in-law's house and the loan covered the closing costs and putting in a new kitchen. I fully understand that. Unfortunately, when that loan was defaulted upon and then ultimately written off by the bank, the borrower had a tax liability that emerged from it. It shows up as income that they had to pay to the IRS. The second component is, is that they lost access to credit, which meant that they did not have the ability to rent a home or anything else, right? So that though there was an absolute cost associated with it, where I think both you and Cam would ultimately agree is where the real risk emerges is in the marketing of that dynamic. What really drove the global financial crisis and the collapse in RMBS was the over-aggressive issuing of loans to people who were either fraudulent or not qualified in order to fill the demand for the products, right? The inverse, uh, uh, the, the synthetic CDOs, right? That were ultimately created by selling insurance against it to create these types of products and the assumptions around the behavior of defaults of the collateral, the, the um, correlation of those defaults right? The, the simplifying assumptions around them. It was a problem in the algorithm, which is exactly what Cam is actually highlighting is one of the key risks that's here. And what I'd like to focus us on as we wrap this up, because we are going to run over and Cam, you're super generous with your time. And, and I appreciate that. And our audience is very engaged and there's lots of great questions that we'd never get the chance to get to. So there's a couple of things that I really want to make sure that, that we hit on though. One is, there's this issue on, um, th there's this issue of, do you actually understand the contract that you're entering into, right? That's one form of key risk when we talk about um, disintermediating the process. 
The second is, what is the role of the financial professional in a world of decentralized finance? And I'd love to get your thoughts on those two questions. Sure. So the first question has to do with you're interacting with an algorithm and the code is available for you to look at. But, you know, 99.9% of the people using the algorithm are not equipped to understand that quote. So the code is complex. So I'm, that... gonna, I'm, I'm gonna interject for one second here. I just wanna remind people that anyone who's ever applied for a mortgage or who's applied for a brokerage account with options, access to leverage, et cetera, there's a long credit document that you have never read. You just sign in the corner and at the, at the end on the line, you're not reading the terms, et cetera. That is code, right? That is an algorithm that has been programmed that defines your rights and your obligations. And you don't pay any attention to it because the only thing that really matters is, can you make your mortgage payment? Okay, I'm sorry, so, keep going. So, exactly. There is a difference here uh, in that the algorithm is completely open and that 0.1% is looking at it very carefully. And indeed, if there's an issue or a potential improvement in the algorithm, then somebody can copy the code that exists make the change and redeploy a competitor. And this happens all the time. So there's so many highly skilled people looking at the algorithm. They see an improvement, they, they redeploy uh, their own thing. And you get this uh, sort of iteration to the best possible algorithm uh, very quickly. So that's, that's number one. Number two, um, maybe best to uh, deal with algorithms that have got a long track record rather than something that was just posted. So it's kind of the same case in, in business often um, that uh, somebody's got a reputation, reputation's important, and then you deal uh, with them. So this is just the algorithmic uh, version of that. And then the second question is really, really important. Uh, and this has to do with what is the role of, for example, financial advisors in this space? And I'm very negative on institutions, traditional institutions like banks and exchanges, centralized exchanges. I think that they'll exist, but in a much smaller and more specialized form. But we're entering an era where the definition or the availability of assets is going to explode. And right at the very beginning, I said something about tokenization. Mm -hmm. Well, all assets are going to be tokenized. We see some of this happening today in the NFT space with art and things like that. A diversified portfolio should have not just stocks and bonds, but it should have commodities. It should have real estate. It should have other things that exist today. And this tokenization of all of these previously illiquid assets allows for a level of diversification that we've never had in history. And people will need help with that to sort through this very complex space. They're gonna need help. And I think that it's gonna be a bonanza for uh, financial advisors that portfolios need to be rethought out. There's gonna be millions of new assets and you'll be able to uh, fractionalize. So let's say I want to invest in mortgages. Well, you could have a, 
a portfolio, even with a thousand dollars investment that has small pieces of millions of mortgages around the world. So that, that is something totally new and very exciting uh, for me. Uh, there's a lot uh, that is going to change. And again, people will need some sort of guidance. Is so, so it is, no, it, it well, Harley. So here, you here's Fannie Mae issuance where you get so, millions so, of loans so, for thousand so dollars. Yeah. So, so Harley, here is actually the core issue that that Cam is highlighting. It's and it's actually exactly what excites me about the space, right? The idea that I can own a fractional piece of thousands of mortgages or millions of mortgages is actually not unique. But the access to that product without going through a mortgage origination, securitization process, at which point tiny little slivers are pulled off in, in tons of forms. You're saying you want and, direct credit risk to a thousand homeowners. Well, the, the, po the, the, the point diversified, the making is the, you already have that in the form of RMBS. And right? Fannie yeah. charge a microscopic fee for it to give, have a government guarantee. Why want to take the credit risk? So again, yeah. those are all features that can actually be incorporated by making the product innately digital, you're eliminating those paper records that say, here's each of the individual components. I have much greater auditing capability, but it does bring up- so You want non-agency loans, which uh, already it, exist. It, again, it doesn't have to be. We can do it through agencies. We can, there's any number of ways it can be accomplished. Okay. But the really critical point, Harley, that I would hit on, and, and, and Cam, correct me if I'm wrong on this, right? is one, when you talk about that world and we talk about the evolution to that world, one is in the traditional finance world, if I enter into a mortgage contract with a bank and the bank chooses to change the terms in the middle, in other words, that algorithm has been altered in the bank's favor. I have recourse through regulators and I have recourse through the court system if they screw me in that process. The standard mortgage application process is a critical innovation that means I'm not getting screwed in the fine print of a particular mortgage contract, as long as I go through that. That doesn't exist currently within DeFi. And unfortunately, the incentives are very high to engage in subterfuge and algorithm corruption for individual players, effectively what's referred to as rug pulls, right? So that's one of the areas I think that both Cam and I would very much agree regulation becomes important. And alongside that, the development, and these are the areas that I would encourage people to focus on. One is the development of the auditing tools that allow you to identify whether that's happened. Does this contract, was it copy-paste or was it copy-paste and add a little extra for the house, right? Those types of auditing tools, not easily available, certainly not easily available to the individual investor. And again, that's where the RIA and financial professional starts to come in we need to develop and learn those tools so that we're able to help navigate, help our clients and help others navigate their way through this universe. It's coming. There's no question in my mind it's coming. Yeah, so I, I totally agree with you that uh, this is a new space. So we're less than 1% uh, into this. And it's not just about fractionalization. Uh, I remember before Facebook went uh, and did their IPO that my um, wealthy friends were actively trading Facebook shares, even though they had an IPO and they were qualified investors that could actually do that. And can you imagine what would happen to kind of small business if you opened up another channel of financing 
through uh, some sort of equity token. So again, this just reduces financial frictions and it makes it much more democratic. And I'm not saying to invest 100% of all your assets in, in one bet. Uh, that wouldn't be uh, wise. And, and hopefully a financial advisor wouldn't allow you uh, to do that. But it does allow many doors to be opened. It does put everybody on the same uh, you know, playing field. And yes, there's going to be things like, as you mentioned, the rug pull. Uh, there's been a few of those. You need to be very careful. Those are usually just tokens that have very little history uh, and in questionable history. Some of it's almost comical, uh, like the squid token that people thought was associated with the, uh, the squid game and had no relationship. Just looking at the webpage alone and seeing all of the false statements and, and, the, and the grammar errors, uh, I wouldn't touch it, but certain people did. So there's risk like that. There will always be risk like that. This is nothing just to do with DeFi. This has to do with any new technology. And I agree, we need to be careful. We need people... We can't just rely upon the regulator. We need a vetting of what looks good and what is questionable. And again, advisors can play an important role in that. Yeah, Ron wants to close up. One last question. The original question, the poll in the beginning, what was your answer to that? How long would it be? So it's, I'm like uh, of the framework that our system will change very dramatically within 10 to 15 years. As for DeFi, we see DeFi today. So most people said one to five years. Well, we're already seeing it. We're 1% in. And, and I expect that to double uh, probably uh, every year uh, for you know, at least the, the next 10 years. So, uh, so in terms of when, in 15 years, I believe if we could fast forward and look around at the financial system, it would barely be recognizable. I think it's going to be more recognizable than Cam thinks, but I, I would echo what Cam is saying. The change has actually started already. Um, what is happening at this point to me is largely about facilitating um, the development of the tools that allow the monitoring of arbitrage, non-arbitrage conditions, et cetera, in the decentralized finance world. You're being paid premiums for that you're being, there's taxes being extracted in the form of fraud, et cetera. I'm very much in Cam's camp, right? Which is, this is something that people should be getting to learn. They should be beginning to learn about, um, particularly the financial professional, particularly the younger financial professional should be thinking very actively about this. I personally am incredibly excited about the potential opportunity for a firm like Simplify to begin to think about introducing tokenized mutual funds, ETFs, et cetera. I can't wait, right? Um, and I realize that that's causing heads of Bitcoiners to explode all over the world. The, the, so can I mention one thing that's really important? Sure. Uh, that some people believe that we're gonna move from the world where like 11 years ago, it was 100% centralized to in 15 years, we're 100% decentralized. And I'm not in that camp. Yeah. So there are certain things that are more efficiently done with a, a centralized institution. So, so maybe you're right, in 15 years, you will see uh, some of the leading banks will still be around, but they're gonna be doing different things. Their business model has been altered. They'll be smaller, but they'll still be around and doing the things that is best done in a centralized manner. 
So this is not a binary choice, centralized or decentralized. So think of this as tackling the things that can be more efficiently and fairly done in a decentralized manner. Those will evolve. And I think that's good for the economy and it's good for everybody that interacts in the economy, except for the current middle layer. And I think that's a great place to wrap up. I would just add for those in the audience that are listening, you know, clearly this is an area of much less debate about is it going to advance and is it going to move forward and more about the question of how do we involve ourselves? What investments should we be making? What should we be learning about? What tools should we be developing, et cetera? And, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to bring Cam on was to just highlight for people that the world is changing beneath our feet. Everyone that has tuned in here at this point has heard me talk about what I believe is the crime of the concentration of the financial sector in the form of concentration amongst banks, in the form of concentration amongst ETF providers and mutual fund providers. I think this is an, a, an unquestioned bad, but it is how the system is currently set up and DeFi is one of the tools that will ultimately change that. We don't have the answers. It is an opportunity for learning. And I would encourage people to read um, Cam's book, Professor Harvey's book, to check out his course, to check out his paper on SSRN, approach it with an open mind, but also approach it with skepticism. There is no answer to immediate wealth. So one of, the, one of the last questions that came in, what investments would you be hodling? The answer is none, right? I am not gonna hodl anything. I am going to continue to explore and try to understand and invest where I think that I have an edge. And I would encourage everybody to think about it in the same way. Kim, mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining us. This was such a pleasure. And we are so fortunate that you took your time out of your day and extended amount of time out of your day to join us. Um, I, I really hope that we can we can uh, tap into your resources again in the future. Thank you again. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. Yeah, unfortunately, it is time to wrap up. And I want to thank also Cam for the fantastic conversation. Also, Mike and Harley, of course. And also thank you for all the participants for tuning in. And uh, do make sure that you register for our upcoming Giving It Simple on the 14th of April featuring guests Stephen Van and Mita. So with that, thanks again and have a great afternoon, everyone. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein.
Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.